Parshat Peshalach. We're going to dedicate this year. I'm sure some of you heard there was a terrible tragedy last night. There's a girl from Amid Rashah, Mudim, I think, who was tragically killed in a car accident. Nebuch. Um, her name was Adira Shoshana Bat Moshe Yitzchak. I understand that uh, people have asked that we learn Torah in her memory, Lilu Nishmata. Um, some of you may be closer to her. So we're going to dedicate this year in her memory. Uh, we're also going to dive from the Shema of Adin Pepper Fox's grandfather. He was an alumni, also involved in this accident. Um, and his wife, who I understand is still in the hospital. And Hashem should be Merapi Cholim. Um, and, you know, there are a number of other patients from the Piguim over the last week that are still fighting for their lives. So we should have in mind our learning should be... Uh, should be a schut for their refuah shlima. So the theme of Parsha B'Shalach is pretty obvious. But in case anybody doesn't get it, I'll make it simple. Okay? Vahi B'Shalach paro Obvious question. What is the obvious question? When, Par- when Pharaoh sent the Jewish people out of Egypt, what's the obvious question? I think it's obvious. Should I read it again? When Paro sent the Jewish people out of Egypt. Yeah, what does that mean? Who is Paro? Paro didn't send the Jewish people out of Egypt. Kosh Baruch Hu decided when it was time to go. In fact, when Kosh Baruch Hu didn't want Paro to send them out yet, he just hardened his heart. So why does it say Orachayim asked this question. We're going to have to understand this. But that's nothing compared to the next question. Next question is unbelievable. Velo nacham, when the Jewish people were sent out of Egypt, okay? What's this? Anybody know what this is? No, oh, this is a map of Israel, okay? This is a map of Israel. <laughs> Up here is Eretz Israel, okay? Go down Eretz Israel and you get to the Sinai. What's down there? What's down there? <coughs> Egypt. Egypt's down there. Israel's up there. Okay? Jewish people get out of Egypt. Let's say Egypt is down here and Eretz Israel's up here. Where's Yamsuf? Yamsuf's over here. Why are they going to Yamsuf? Why don't they go straight up to Israel? Doesn't make sense. They do a whole loop. Did you ever wonder? Take a look at any map. How are the Jewish people in Egypt? And then they're crossing over the Jordan. What, what genius came up with that plan? But what Moshe was just too embarrassed to ask directions? Like, what is that about? So, this is not a problem, because Kosh Baruch explains in the Torah. V'lo nacham elokim, derech eretz plishtim. Hashem doesn't take them by way of the Philistines. And there are four major Philistine cities. Aza, Gat, Ashkelon, Ashdod, they're still around. Gat is ruins. The other three are still sitting there. You can go to Ashkelon and see the ruins from the Tkufata Plishtim mamash before you go to the beach. It's unbelievable. Okay? Ashdod. Beit Shemesh also, but that's another discussion. So Hashem doesn't want to take them up the coast so that they end up getting and going through Philistine territory. Kikarovu, even though it was closer... It's a much easier journey. Ki amar Elohim, because Hashem says, Pein yinachem ha'am. 
lest the people relent, bir'otam milchama, when they see war, b'shavu mitzrayma. The people are going to get out. They're going to see this warring nation, the Philistines. They're going to have a freak out and they're going to go back to Egypt. Now, there are some obvious problems with this Pasuk. Here's the most obvious problem, okay? What is this? What is this? This is Egypt. This is Egypt. What's, what's this? This is Yad Hashem. That's it. What's the problem? HaKadosh Baruch Hu's nervous. Did you like that? HaKadosh Baruch Hu's nervous. Planned that all day. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's nervous. Getting at all my aggression. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's nervous. The Jewish people are going to be afraid. They're going to see war. Okay. So what does he do instead? He takes them to Yamsuf. And what happens when they get to Yamsuf? They get chased by the Egyptian army. And they're terrified. So what's Tutzach? And you know what? Let's say for some reason the Egyptian army is different. They don't actually fight. Hashem fights. Then they get through Yamsuf. What happens right after they get through Yamsuf? Who do they run into? A Malik. And what do they have to do? They have to fight a war. Hello? McFly, something's not right here. This is a ridiculous puzzle. What does this puzzle even mean? So, so we need to understand what this is. And I'll tell you what the theme, right? The Pasuk says, right? If I get it right. Um, Hashem <coughs> hardens Paro's heart again. And Paro chases after the Jewish people. Right? The Jewish people lift up their eyes and they see that the Egyptian army is coming their way. And they're very afraid. They're terrified. Unbelievable Medrash. The Medrash in Shemot Rabbah says, this is like a Yonah, a dove, which is desperately trying to hide in the cleft of the rock from the hawk that's trying to kill it. And all of a sudden it discovers that inside the cleft of the rock is a viper, a snake, that's about to kill it. It's caught between the hawk and the viper. What do you do? The Egyptians are behind them. The sea is in front of them. Now the sea is not, you know, it's not like Lake Placid. You know, Chazal say, if it's going to be a sea, if Hashem's going to make this good, he's going to make it, it's a raging fraud. Like, you know, tidal waves are exploding. I mean, it's crazy. There's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Why would Hashem put them in that situation if he doesn't want them to be afraid? Now you could say, well, now they're afraid, but they can't run back to Egypt. Why could they run back to Egypt if they were afraid of the Philistines? Take them up straight opposite the Philistines. Have a sea behind them. There'll be the sea behind them. There'll be the Philistines in front of them. Ah, you'll tell me there's no sea. Sakash Barko, make a sea for the afternoon. What's what is this story? What's going on here? All right? Go a stage further. Okay? 
Vayavou Bnei Israel. So what ends up happening? We know this, right? Okay. Vayitzaku Bnei Israel El Hashem. So Bnei Israel call out to Hashem. What does that mean they're doing? What are they doing? They're not. Good or bad? Bad. Why is it bad? Who said it's bad? What are you, nuts? Kadosh Baruch you're in trouble. What do you do? Well, what do you do? You're in trouble. What do you do? First thing you do, you're daven. You're daven. Fayomuel Moshe. Now this gets a little complicated because they don't just daven. They start complaining. Okay, that's a problem. Fayomuel Moshe, why'd you take us here to die? This is what we told you. We told you it's going to be a mess. <coughs> so Moshe says to the Jewish people, don't be afraid. What do you mean, don't be afraid? Can you imagine, God forbid, 60 terrorists around the building, they start firing bullets in, you know, and, and, and someone in the room might be a little nervous, right? <coughs> I don't know, Avery Weinberg comes from Boston. You know, they're chilled in Boston, they're intellectual, he's trying to, and I see he's nervous. So I walk over to him and say, don't worry about it. It's okay. Kashbacher runs the world. He would look at me like I'm out of my mind. By the way, let's just use that example. God forbid you're in a situation and you hear gunfire. It's a, it's a, you know, I'll tell you a true story. My brother and I, uh, we were both in the army at the same time. We were both in Lebanon at the same time. And so we didn't get to see each other that much. We're very close. And every once in a while, we managed to get out at the same time. And this particular Shabbat, we got out at the same time. And, you know, we didn't have cell phones then. So I never knew whether he was going to be home. Right? My parents had bought an apartment. We had a place in the center of town. It was awesome. And I get home, and my brother's there, which was unbelievable. So we decided we're going to go out and grab some pizza lunch. So we changed out of our uniforms, because once you're in the army for a while, the last thing you want to do is walk around in uniform, Right? And, you know, dressed in our normal clothes. And we walk into town. And we're walking down King George Street, heading towards, I think, Richie's Pizza, which was a pizza place near the corner of King George and Yaffa, which you now know where it is very well, I'm sure. And there was a car that backfired. Right? Right? And the two of us, without thinking about it, just hit the dirt and did a roll. Because that's what you do. Right? And then we suddenly realized, we're like in the middle of the street and you're shining. So we felt like idiots. And people around started laughing. Now, you can tell when the guy's a soldier, he's got the soldier's haircut, he's got the watch strap, whatever it is. So people were like laughing, but they weren't laughing at us. They were like, they got it, right? That's just what you do. That's what they train you to do. If you hear a gunshot, you hit the ground. Why are you hitting the ground? What should you really do? Really. If you're on that level. In that moment, you should go into a lotus position. Say, Hashem... It should be so interesting to see if the bullets are meant to hit me or not. Because if the bullets are meant to hit me, they'll catch me down there. And if they're not meant to hit me, they won't catch me over here. And I can tell you, now I can laugh about this, it wasn't so funny then. You can be running up a hill, under gunfire, bullets flying everywhere. If Hashem doesn't want you to get scratched, you won't get scratched. And I wish I had known that before I ran up the hill, because I would have had a different energy when I ran up the hill. So what do you do? Give you another example of this question, right? <coughs> so 
we're in um, it was Matzah Yom Kippur and um, this was the beginning of the second intifada so I'm deep into my reserve duty I'm, I'm long since out of the army and we get called up on a Tzav Shemona I think I told you that story once and um, all hell broke loose in this country I mean, shootings on the road, Molotov cocktails. This is 2001. No. Rosh Hashanah 2000. I think it was Rosh Hashanah 2000. Yeah. And the whole world went crazy around here. <coughs> Palestinian Authority, post-Oslo. Oslo Accords were signed in 93. 95, we gave away Aza and Yericho. Then we started giving away lots of other cities, Janine and Shechem, whatever. 2000 was the summer when they realized they made a big mistake. And basically, it all broke open, and they suddenly realized that there are not enough sort of ready forces available for what was going on, so they drafted like thousands of Milunikim. And we got drafted overnight, and it got a little crazy. And I've told you a couple of stories. So now it's Yom Kippur. So this has been going on since Matzai Rosh Hashanah, so it's almost eight, nine days. And we get to Yom Kippur, and I wasn't sure what to do. I'm supposed to be the Baal Tefillah. This is long before Raita. I'm the, I was supposed to dive Musaf in our neighborhood. But, you know, I'm in the army, and I'm a Mempei, and I've got all my gear and my, my radios and my telephones. And I, you know, happened to be that one of my first sergeants was also in our community. So I went over and I said, look, I'm not quite sure what to do. I'm happy to dive Musaf. But it's going to be very uncomfortable if I dive in Musaf and my radio goes off. I'm not going to interrupt Chazar's shots in the middle of Musaf for everybody and start talking to the radio. But if I get called, I get called. I have to... So he said, you know what? Give me all your radios, your mirrors, your cell phone, your whatever. And I'll listen. I'll be Bazana. And if you get called, then then Malasot, somebody will have to switch you. Okay. So that's what we did. The whole day. It was unbelievable. Kol Nidre, Mariv, the night... The morning, the afternoon, Musaf, the whole day, nothing. Not a chatter on the radio. Everybody on our channel understood it was Yom Kippur. We made sure everybody understood, don't waste our time with, like, is, you know, dinner coming. Only a call on the radio if there's, like, an emergency. And it was all quiet. And I thought, okay, things have calmed down. They got it under control. We're done. You know, that's what happened in the tunnel riots in 96. I figured, okay, they got it under control. So... I get, you know, I'm still on duty and I had to do some stuff in the afternoon. I come home and, um, you know, in my uniform, but we get to have Sunnah Mafzakat. And I'm breaking the fast and we had some guests over and like Baruch Hashem. And um, all of a sudden, everything goes haywire. My phone starts ringing and my mirror starts ringing and whatever. And basically, they were shooting up in the Dagan and I had to hurry out, like, and I had all my gear by the front door in case of emergency. So I look at Dorit, and I'm like, okay, got to go. And I re- grab my gear, ran out the door, shakbats, efod, kazda, you know, whatever. Run out to the Jeep and tear off. Having no idea, because I never experienced this before, what this is doing to my kids who see their dad running out the door with all his gear and then hear shooting in the distance 10 minutes later. So it's not a good move, but it is what it is. So I'm sitting now back in that chair. It's Matzah Yom Kippur, and my radios go off. What should I really do? On the one hand, don't be afraid. Because Baruch Hu says, 
יהיה בסדר, יהיה בסדר. What do you worry about? חזקיהו המלך is taken to task. באסה המלך יהודה is taken to task. Because he tries to bribe the king of Aram in Sefer Malachim and in Divrei Yamim to prevent or to stop the treaty between the king of Aram and Basha, who is Melech Yisrael. And so Chazal take, the Navi, right, uh, the Roe, takes Basa, Melech Yehuda, to task because he should have trusted the Kosh Baruch The Gemara, by the way, says an unbelievable thing. The Gemara says that, that this is a much bigger tragedy than people realize because the, the split between Malchut Yisrael, the northern kingdom of ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of three, was only supposed to last 36 years. Anybody know this tomorrow why it was supposed to last 36 years? Anybody know? Because that was how many years Shlomo Melech was with Bat Paro. And this was the tikkun for that. But now we're supposed to get back together. If, if Basa, Melech Yudah, had trusted in the Kodesh Baruch Hu, and had waged war against the north, the tri- they would have won, and the tribes would have been reunited, and the whole split would have ended. And if the split would have ended, who knows? Maybe Chorben Abayit wouldn't have happened. Unbelievable. But I don't understand. Rav Nevenzel has a magnificent sicha on this topic. I don't understand. We all know that you have to decide what you need to do. You have to do your ishtatlus. So should you have bitachon and let Hashem run the world? Or should you do Ishtadus and take your own role in the world? What is the Kodesh Baruch Hu Paskin here? Vayomu Moshe Elam Al Tirao. Now let me ask you a question. Today, the Syrians attack from the north. And the Egyptians and Hamas attack from the south. And the Jordanians decide to join. And the Lebanese, and we're surrounded. Right? So what do we do? What do we do? We fight back. You got to do your stablos. No. Hit yatzvu al tirao. Hit yatzvu uru et yeshuat Hashem asheyaseh lachem ayam. Okay? Stand and see that Hashem will save you. So pshat here is, sometimes you just have to be tachem. Right? By the way, what does Rashi here say? The guys in Poland may remember I quoted this in the Shir, right? Lo eit ata le'arich betfilah. This is not the time to have a long daven. You don't need to daven. Bitachon. Believe in Akash Baruch. But what happens next? Okay, so they see the Egyptians wiped out, right? And, sorry, they see that Hashem performs a miracle and the sea splits. Right? Sea splits. Right? You got to walk through the sea. Right? Daberel b'nei Yisrael v'yisau. Tell the Jewish people they have to march. And the Jewish people come into the sea on the land. So the Medrash notices this is a strange sentence. What does that mean? Into the sea on the land. So this is Medrash. This is in, in Shmot Rabbe and Bashala. In Chaf Alef Yud. If they're in the sea, what does that mean they're on the, on the land? And if they're on the land, why are they in the sea? 
Ela mitchana talamei. Here you learn. Shalom nikala hemayam. The sea was not split for them. At shabau letocho at chutman. Until they waded into the water. Ve'achakach nasalem yemasha. They had to first be willing to jump in. Who, by the way, was the first to jump in? And Nachshan of Benarinadav is given a high place of honor because he jumps into the sea. Now, if, if it was just wading in by your ankles, it wouldn't be a big deal. This must have been a big deal. You know, maybe they're jumping off a cliff into raging waters. So what does that smack like? Bitachon or Ishtavlos? That sounds like Ishtavlos to me. It's Ishtavlos, you have to jump in. Ishtavlos means you have to do your bit. Bitachon, shouldn't Bitachon mean, I'm here, if you want to save me, Listen, who's this? No, this is Bnei Israel. What's this? No, this is Yamsef. Okay? And what's this? Yad Hashem. Yad Hashem has the Jewish people over here. The Jewish people have to get over there. Come on, Why do I need to split the sea? You got to go in. If you don't go in, it's not going to split. It's like Hilchas Kriyas Yamsef. If you put one foot in, then maybe. But if you put the second foot in, then for sure. But if you only put a toe, you're not going to get it. What, what? There seems to be some sort of a balance between what Hashem does and what we have to do. And sometimes we have to do our bit, and sometimes Hashem does his bit. How do we understand that balance? Okay, so they, they finish with Kriyas Yamsev. They see the Egyptian army destroyed, they're ready to go. <coughs> what happens? They have no water. Right? Is Hashem really running the show here? Chazal see those psukim as connected. When the Jewish people doubt that Hashem is running the world, then Amalek steps in. What's the gematria of Amalek? Anybody know? Suffolk. Doubt. Amalek is the same gematria as doubt. You can figure this out afterwards. Amalek introduces... If there was ever a moment in history when the world could have been absolutely certain that Hashem runs the world, it's that moment right after Christmas. The Egyptians are vanquished, ten plagues, the Jewish people get out, the sea splits, the Egyptian army is destroyed, Hashem runs the world. Except that Amalek comes and attacks us from the rear and it engages us in battle, so maybe Hashem doesn't really run the world. Amalek's greatest contribution is that they introduce doubt. <coughs> Maybe sometime we'll have a shear on who Amalek is before Shabbat Zachor. <coughs> and why we read on Shabbat Zachor the parsha from Kitetze, not the parsha from Bashalach, and, and why Amalek is significant, and does Amalek still exist? Because it's a mitzvah, Lador Dor, it's an eternal mitzvah. Were the Nazis Amalek? Are the Arabs today Amalek? Interesting question. But back to our topic, so the Jewish people get out of Yamsuf and they have to fight a war. Who's fighting the war? Who's leading the battle? Yoshua. That's what everybody will say. 
And everybody will be Everybody will be right But But it's not so simple It's not so simple because Choose for us, men. It's not the whole army. Get a crew and wage battle against Amalek. Now he doesn't say choose men. He says choose for us. We're all in this together. I will be on top of the mountain. And the staff of Hashem will be in my hand. So what is that about? Why does Moshe have to be on top of the mountain? If Yeshua is fighting the battle. Now we already know the answer to this question. What does Moshe end up doing? No? He raises his hands. What happens when he raises his hands? They're winning. What happens when he drops his hands? Oh, so we got a problem because he's getting tired. Did you ever think about that? Moshe Abenu. 40 days on the mountain without food and water, no problem. He gets tired after an hour because the Jews are... Really? And now you see that when you lift your hands, they're winning and you get tired. What are you, a Worcester? Pardon? He's beginning the Jews, yeah. He's, he's got to work out for those two tablets, but he's not there yet. Okay. This is a strange pussy. This is a strange pussy, right? Okay. All right. So we know what happens. What happens? Who goes up on the mountain? Aaron and Chur. And what do they do? They hold up his hands. And when they hold up his hands, everything is great. So I got two questions here. First question is, what is that about? Why is Moshe up on the mountain? Now, Pshat is he's on the mountain because then they can see him. If he was down below, they wouldn't see him. Okay. But to Moshe Rabbeinu in the period of miracles, if Hashem wants you to see him, he doesn't have to go up on the mountain. In fact, the last time Moshe went up on a mountain, they couldn't see him. Actually, that's the next time. They couldn't see him. So going up on the mountain doesn't seem to necessarily be the antidote for this type of thing, but okay. But there's something even more interesting. Because the story I just described, which you all agreed with, which is how everybody tells the story, is actually not quite correct. Take a look at this. You know I love about learning Pasha Shavuot? Every year when you learn the Pasha, you notice something you didn't notice before. It's awesome. And it used to be, when I was much younger, I would get depressed about this, but I, I can't believe I didn't notice this. Where was I last year? Now I realize Hashem gives you things as they're meant to come to you. So it's always exciting to start the parasha. You like how I put a spin on that? Yeah? I'm not an idiot. It's Tashkash Baruch's fault. But okay, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, straight again for me. Right. Listen to this passage. This is unbelievable. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this passage. You tell me what I noticed and what the obvious question is, okay? I'm going to read the Pasuk. Tell me what I noticed, what the obvious question is. Go up on the mountain. Etc. So what's the question? Why what? Why did Aaron and Chur go up? I always thought they'd go up because they see his hands are weak, so they go up to help him. But that's not true. They go up with him. Why are they going up with him? What are they doing on the mountain? This is a strange story. So who is Chur? So there are two ideas that are really powerful here. 
First of all, how do we balance freedom of choice? Like if Hashem says, I'm not taking you, Derech Eretz Plishtim, because if you see the Philistines, you'll want to go back to Egypt. But Hashem runs the world. If Hashem doesn't want you to go back to Egypt, then you won't go back to Egypt. So obviously Hashem is giving us the freedom to choose to go back to Egypt, but Hashem is limiting our ability to make that choice. Okay. Then Hashem says, what do you want from me? Mati Why are you crying to me? Tell them to go. Do your bit. You got to be mishtado. And then we see that when they're fighting a war in Amalek, you have to do your bit. You have to fight. But it's not quite enough for you to fight. Moshe is lifting his hands up. There's some, there's some other part of this puzzle. So I want to share with you a couple of ideas. First, there is a fascinating comment by the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra, what mountain, what mountain were the Jewish, were Moshe, Aaron, and Hor standing on? Very interesting. What mountain were they standing on? Anybody know? Hmm? Ibn Ezra says, Chorev is associated with Arsinai. Chorev is where they were standing. They're standing on Arsinai. Now, why do they have to go to Arsinai to stand up there? By the way, since we're already on this topic, what other event occurs at Har Chorev? Right? What's the event right before Amalek? What happens right before Amalek? Right? Vayisu, Vayachanu, Rafidim. Rafidim, the Medrash says, Rafu Yadam, their hands were weak, they weren't learning Torah, it's a whole discussion, but okay. They're in Rafidim, right? And, and, second, Vayitzma Shama Am Lamayim, Vayalanam Al Moshe, right? And they complained to Moshe. And again, Moshe says, Moshe has to go from Rafidim to Chorev, which is not far. Why doesn't he just hit a rock in Rafidim? You guys did a desert retreat. Do you agree with me? You can find a rock anywhere in the desert. Why does he have to go to Chorev? And Chorev is our scene. Well, what's going on here? So... There are two things worth discussing here. First, do we really have freedom of choice? Okay, this is your question. So I didn't forget. Do we really have freedom of choice? Let's think about this for a minute. Harrison Feld is sitting in a Starbucks in Seattle. And he's debating where to go to Yeshiva. He can go to, I forget what it was, Hakoto? Am I getting right? Pardon? Yeah. Okay. He can go to Akoto, he can go to Oraita. Now, I already know that it doesn't matter what he chooses. Kurdish Barakhu has decided he's going to Oraita. That's not because, by the way, Oraita is a better place. It's not because Harrison is a better boy. It's because for Harrison, Oraita is the right place. How do I know Oraita is the right place for Harrison? Because he's here. 
But for some reason, Harrison doesn't know that. He thinks he's got to struggle with this choice, and struggle he does for quite some time. Okay? And by the way, you meet sometimes people who are in yeshiva already. They're here a week, two weeks, even a month. <coughs> and they're still struggling. We get calls sometimes from boys <coughs> in December. You know, a mother who calls, and God forbid I don't hold this against anybody. They're struggling with they are, they think maybe this is the right place, and it's, it's painful to have to say to someone, you know, end of December, it's not really, it's a little late in the year to come, it doesn't work. Nothing to do with the boy, it just doesn't work. What am I really saying to him? Or to the mom, I'm saying, no, no, you don't understand. Kosh Baruch Hu made a decision for you. No. I'm just the agent of a Kosh Baruch Hu. Right? <laughs> so Rav Noam comes to the dorm, and he says, I don't know, where's Phil? <laughs> All right. And he says, Phil, I know this room is spotless, but there might be one piece of paper on the floor. I need you to do an inspection. So what should Phil say? Kosh Baruch runs the world. <laughs> I'm learning Mishnayas. If the piece of paper is meant not to be on the floor, Hashem will remove it. There'll be a wind, it'll come, it'll blow the piece of paper away. So why is that ridiculous? And if Hashem really runs the world, where's our freedom of choice? Where's our freedom of choice? How does our freedom of choice balance with... So I want you to understand something. The Gemara says, there are many different opinions on this. I'm going to share with you mine. Okay? The Gemara says, Everything is in the hands of Shemayim, except for Yirat Shemayim. In other words, who you marry, who your children are going to be, what you're going to do with your life, who your friends are going to be, whether you have a burger tonight or not. It's all bidesham, it's all planned. The only thing that isn't planned is your Yirat Shemayim. Hashem gives us the ability to have Yirat Shemayim, and that's freedom of choice. Now, what does that mean? It means that our freedom of choice is not about what happens, it's about how we view what happens. What's the problem with B'nai Yisrael and the Plishtim? It's not whether they'll end up going back. With me, it's not whether they'll end up going back. Because they're not going back. Because Hashem has decided they're not going back. It's whether they want to go back. Hashem doesn't want the Jewish people to want to go back so quickly. It's not good for them. It's like when you have a child. If you put a big chocolate bar on the kitchen table before dinner, your child is going to want that chocolate bar. You don't want him to want the chocolate bar right now. Now you know he's not eating the chocolate bar because you're dad and you've decided he's not eating the chocolate bar. He cannot eat the chocolate bar because he says, oh, okay, and he has dinner. He cannot eat the chocolate bar because he doesn't know he's there. Or he cannot eat the chocolate bar because he's screaming and throws a fit and breaks a glass and then you put him to bed without dinner but he still doesn't get the chocolate bar. He's not eating the chocolate bar. But you don't actually want him to want the chocolate bar right now because it's not good for him. So our only freedom of choice is how we see what Hashem puts in front of us. Think about this for a minute. This entire parsha is about changing the perception of the Jewish people. <coughs> the Jewish people got out of Egypt, right? So we're done. Why is Egypt still running after us? 
Because Hashem says, no, 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 you're not done yet. I want power to come. I want this to continue. Why? Why don't we just say we're done? What is the need to add this whole story of Kriyas Yamsuf and Shviras Mitzrayim? The Jewish people for 210 years have been enslaved in Egypt. In their minds, the Egyptians are like gods. And before they can fully accept Hashem runs the world, they have to see that Egypt doesn't. Right? Now, what is Egypt's primary... By the way, what is Egypt's primary message? Who really rules the world? Who rules the world? Pardon? Might makes right. Okay? This, by the way, what is polytheism? Right? What does polytheism really mean? It means I have multiple gods. How can you have multiple gods? Because sometimes this god does right, and sometimes this god. When the Nile River overflows, then they worship the Nile. But what if there's a drought? And the Nile's not overflowing? Fine. So then he doesn't get my sacrifice, I'll give it to the bull. Whichever is stronger. Who, by the way, promulgated this philosophy and blamed the Jews for introducing a different idea? Adolf Hitler. He writes this in Mein Kampf. He was determined to bring the world back to the strong survive and the weak fall away and might makes right and the survival of the fittest and that whole Darwinist theory and all of its dangers. The Jewish people introduced to the world the idea that might doesn't make right. But the Jewish people get out of Egypt, that's exactly what they learned. We were, we were worthy of being enslaved because they were stronger than we were. Comes along a Kosh Baruch Hu, how come we're out of Egypt? Because he was stronger. So all I've learned is that might makes right, but our God is mightier than theirs. How do you fix that? So the first thing that happens is Egypt has to get destroyed. Egypt gets destroyed, but we're still not there. Because Hashem is stronger than Egypt, so Egypt gets destroyed. So might makes right. Then they have to fight a Amalek. And when they're fighting a Amalek, they discover it's not actually might makes right. Victory really comes from Har Chorev. Victory doesn't come from who has a stronger army. Victory comes from Akash Baruch It comes from Torah. It comes from Moshe Rabbeinu lifting up his hands. By the way, we don't have time to get into this, but having raised the question, give some thought to who Aaron and Chor are and why Aaron and Chor are the ones who have to hold up the hands <coughs> of Moshe Rabbeinu. By the way, every time, the Sfas says, every time you see hands, right, Yadayim, look for Kol. Look for the voice. Where's the first time I find the connection between the hands and the voice? Esav and Yaakov. Kol Kol Yaakov, Yadayim and Esav, or vice versa. Look for that in this parasha, you'll find it. Right? Sometimes we have to put on the clothing of Esav. Isn't it interesting that it's Moshe Rabbeinu calling out to Kosh Baruch Hu with the hands of Esav? So we all know who Aaron is. Who's Chur? Chur is interesting. The Gemara says in Sota that Chur, anybody know who Chur's parents were? Kalev and Miriam, that's right. Okay, it's very interesting, by the way. Moshe Rabbeinu has two siblings. Both of them have tragedies regarding their children. Aaron loses another one of you. Chur disappears. Chazal say that he tried to stop Chet Egel and so they killed him. That's a whole interesting discussion. 
And if you add what happened to Moshe Rabbeinu's sons, all three of them have tragic lives when it comes to their families. Chor is the son of Kalev. Kalev is Vayas Kalev Adam. Kalev gets the entire Jewish people to pause, but then misses the opportunity. Right? What else do we know about Chor? There's one other place Chor is mentioned in Torah. Anybody know? He's the grandfather of? Betzalel. Right? Betzalel ben, who was Betzalel's father? Uri. Uri, good. And Uri's father was Chor. Whenever the Torah takes the time to mention a grandfather, like take, for example, the story of Benos Tzlafchad, it, it, it gives their lineage all the way back to Menashe and Yosef, because there's a message there. There's something from Yosef, the Avat Eretz Yisrael, that comes down to Benos Tzlafchad. Same thing here. Something about Chur is given over and is the reason that Petzalel creates the Mishkan. If you take those different ideas, you'll understand why Chur and Aaron are going up on the mountain. But Chor and Aaron basically represent Ishtadlus. Moshe Rabbeinu lifting up his hands represents Pitachar. <coughs> and that balance is what this parasha is about. It's how I choose to see the world. You know? The Holocaust is what the Holocaust is. We can't understand the Holocaust. I don't think we can even try to understand the Holocaust. The only thing we're left with, Eloise Zell once said, is you can affirm God or you can deny God. He can no longer ignore God. I have met survivors who just live inspired lives. And I have met survivors who are completely broken. I've met survivors, I don't know if you could say put the Holocaust behind you. That's a presumptuous thing to say and I don't begin to understand. But I've met Holocaust survivors who were able to somehow put the Holocaust into its box and live their lives. Have meaningful lives, have joy-filled lives. And I've met Holocaust survivors who are totally broken. I remember a survivor came here once to speak. And she spoke about her brother. Her older brother. Unbelievable story. But her older brother was in Auschwitz. And he was with their younger brother. And his mission was to keep his brother safe. His mother had said, the last thing she had said to them was, take care of your brother. And the brother got sick. And he had to go to work. And he managed to give him a half of his piece of bread. And he went off to work. He came back that night. And his brother was gone. They had taken him to the infirmary. And he was desperate. And he managed to get to the infirmary a day later. And his brother was gone. Because that was the first place they went for selections. And this brother, who lost his brother, never forgave himself. And he refused to have children. Refused to get married. I won't bring children into this world. And the way she described him, he lived a broken, painful life. You know? And I don't want anybody to misinterpret this comment. This is not chas v'shalom. We don't begin to understand what these people went through. Can't even begin to imagine putting yourself in their shoes. But you can absolutely say with certainty that the difference <coughs> is how you're blessed or perhaps you choose to look at the world. That is the only freedom of choice we have in this world. That's how I see this topic. It's not really about what ends up happening. Now, by the way, what's the value to this shita? Which I believe is based on the chazanish, but whatever. What's the value to this shita? If everything that's meant to be is meant to be, and the only freedom of choice you have is how you choose to look at the world, then there's no guilt about what happened. We learn from our mistakes. Our mistakes are not what we actually do. Our mistakes are what we wanted to do. Sometimes you want to do something and you don't manage to do it. 
Sometimes you don't want to do something and it ends up happening. That's a Kosh Baruch But if I want to do something, that's what I can work on. That changes the way you look at the world. Which means if you wake up in the morning and you find a way to create a positive way to look at the world every day, then you are living your freedom of choice to its fullest. And that's what this parasha is about. And I don't think it's an accident that Peshalach comes before Yitro. That before we're ready to receive Torah, we first have to understand how to view the world. So there's a lot more to talk about in this parasha, but we'll stop with this. It's getting late. A little bit of food for thought on parasha Peshalach. <laughs>